0: And if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis. And uh, I'm, all, I'm quite sad to say it, we're entering, the, we're entering the, finals, the final stretch of the book of Genesis. I've probably got three more sermons on, on it, so uh, um, I feel sad coming to the end of it, but it's been a great study. So Genesis 46, we'll read the whole chapter. We're looking at the life of... Um, Joseph in particular, the last few weeks in the book of Genesis. And the last time we were together, the tension in the story of Joseph reached its crescendo. And we saw and rejoiced and exalted in the reconciliation which was accomplished by the Lord and his good providence amongst Joseph and his brothers. Now all along I've said that the providence of God is at the very heart of the story of Joseph. And in particular, there's two overarching purposes in God's providence that are apparent in the story of Joseph. First of all, we've seen and we've said over and over that the story of Joseph does tell us how Israel wound up in Egypt. And then it also shows us how the promise of God to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-2 would be fulfilled that this is how God would make this family great as it was into a nation how it would take the, the Jacob's family and turn it into a nation and in particular that second theme that we've spoken of the making of Abraham's family into a great nation becomes even more apparent in the passage we're going to study this morning that God has a very good reason for bringing Israel's family into Egypt. And Egypt is going to be the matrix in which a godly people is created. And this is ironic, especially in light of what Egypt stands for in the Old Testament, that it is to be Egypt where God shall make his godly people. The isolation and the oppression of Egypt is to form the crucible where God will keep Israel pure. You see that? It's the crucible where God will make Israel pure, religiously and ethnically, and he will teach her, Israel, to trust in him alone. So let's pray before we read God's word. O Lord, our God, we thank you for your word We do ask this morning that we would have seeing eyes and hearing ears to receive in our hearts the truth of your word. And that we would learn the secret of bowing the knee to your providence, of embracing your goodness as well as your sovereignty and of walking in trust and obedience to your word and to your promise. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear the word of God from Genesis 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And I myself will go down with you to Egypt. And I also will bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Kameh, the sons of Simeon, Jemiel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shiaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari the sons of Judah, Ur, er, Onan, Shelah, Peres, and Zerah. But Ur er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamil, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puvar, Yob, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Zerid, Elon, and Jehil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Paddan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah, Although his son, altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Zippian, Hagi, Shunai, Esbon, Irai, Aradai, and Eriai. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Beriah, the Sterah, their Sister. And the sons of Beriah, Heba, and Machiel. These are the sons of Zilpah whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and those she bore to Jacob, 16 persons, the sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphera the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bila, Bekah, Ashbel, Gira, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mappin, Hapin, and Ard, these are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphali, Jazeel, Gunai, Jezer, and Shilliam. Sounds like a well cut, doesn't it? These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. And all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me, and the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock. And they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Thanks be to God. The reunion between Joseph and his brothers was the first stage of God's reunion plan for the family of Jacob. And that reunion plan was going to entail Jacob moving not temporarily but permanently into the land of Egypt. And he would see with his own eyes the glory of his son Joseph. And thus that dream of Joseph's youth would be fulfilled as the son and the The stars and the sun and the moon bowed down to him and saw him in his royal splendor. But even in this story of reunion and this story of migration, we see the themes of God's disciplining and wise and perfect providence. For as Israel moves to Egypt, God is setting in stage for a greater period in his plan of redemption. This is all, this is our story. This is God's plan of redemption. So I want you to see the passage in three parts. Verses 1 to 7, which is the account of Israel's relatively uneventful journey to Egypt, with an eventful pause at the southern border of Canaan in Beersheba, which is the same place where its father and grandfather had offered sacrifice. Jacob himself would worship. We'll speak about that in a few moments. Then verses 8 to 27, that wonderful list, that list of the children of Israel. I, I, I almost thought about, and those names which you can read, but I didn't plow ahead. And the list of names, like so many in the Bible lists of names. And I, you know, just like I talked on Thursday night about every greeting is significant and every benediction is significant. So every list of names, it's not just the Hebrew phone book. It is very significant, not least of which reason as that this is an illustration of how small the family of Jacob was. This is how many went when God called Israel into Egypt and contrast that to Deuteronomy 7 and the great nation of Israel entering the promised land. So this is here for a very specific reason, and one of them is that we see how small they were. When they went into Egypt, they were 17. It lists them exactly. So God is going to draw a parallel between the greatness of their numbers then and the smallness of their numbers at this stage of their journey to Egypt. We'll look at that as well briefly. And then thirdly, you get to verse 28 to the end of the chapter. You see they're very poignant, they're very moving Reunion of Joseph with his father, of Joseph with his father Israel, and then the preparation, the careful preparation, by the way, for the audience with Pharaoh. So just in these three parts, I want to point out a few things this morning from God's words. First of all, Israel enters Egypt, verses one to seven. Israel, Jacob, went to Egypt in obedience and faith. Knowing that trials would come. Israel's journey to Egypt wasn't a day trip. It wasn't a holiday. It wasn't a short visit. Israel went to Egypt to die. He went to Egypt to die. He told us that in Genesis 45 verse 28. He wanted to go to Egypt to see his son. And he knew that when there he would die. So in verse 1, we're told he took all that he had. He wasn't leaving anything behind to go back again. It was his final move. It was his big move. This was a permanent transfer into the land of Egypt. And it was a huge step of faith. It was a huge step of faith in light of a number of factors. Not simply how old he was. But it related to God's promises with regard to Canaan, the promised land, the promised land. It was a huge step of faith for Jacob to go to Egypt in light of the humiliation that Abraham, his grandfather, had suffered there. And in light of the fact that Genesis twenty six two, Israel you know, or Isaac had been specific, Isaac had been specifically forbidden by God to go into Egypt. Now, however, in response to the revelation of God, in response to the providence of God, Jacob, in a huge leap of faith, prepares to make his final move and go to Egypt. And not not only that, this is a man who had sojourned for many years of his youth outside Canaan. At some points despairing whether he would ever see his family again. We know, we've looked at the story of Jacob. So everything would would have been humanly against the grain of Jacob's decision to uproot and make this big move to Egypt. It must have been an overwhelming thought for that man to think of dying outside the land of Canaan. But he went because he was obedient to the word of God. He was obedient to God's word. This This was a response to God's word. For he knew the word that had been given to Abraham, his grandfather. That he would take his people into Egypt. Where they would dwell for 430 years under oppression. And he would bring out a great nation. And he knew the word that God had revealed in the dream of his son. That his son would be made great. So if you think about that, if you put all of that together and Jacob believed in God... And he, so he'd seen the evidence in the wagons of treasure that had come back from where Joseph was. He'd seen the evidence tangibly before his eyes. So in response to God's word, in response to God's providence, Israel makes his way to Egypt. You need to see this as an action of faith. He trusts in God, not because this is what he wants to do, But it is an act of obedience. He is obediently responding to the command and the providence of God. And when he comes to Beersheba on the southern border of Canaan, he pauses to worship one last time in Canaan. It's a very poignant moment. Israel pauses to worship one last time in Canaan. Think of it, just think of it, my friends. It'd be half a millennium before the sons of Israel would again worship in Canaan. It'd be half a millennium. And this is the last worship service for about 500 years in the land. Derek Kidner in his commentary says, The place and the character of Jacob's worship indicate his frame of mind. For Beersheba had been Isaac's chief centre in addressing his God as the God of his father. And he was acknowledging the family calling and implicitly seeking leave to move out of Canaan. They were asking for God's blessing and Israel was worshipping here in response to God's revelation. He had seen the fulfilment of the dream that God had given Joseph and he knew the promise that God had given Abraham in Genesis 15. If you briefly briefly just turn to Genesis 15, 13, if you have a Bible. God said to Abraham in the very context in which he confirmed or reconfirmed his covenant commitment to give Abraham the land. Genesis 15, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there and they will be afflicted. And so on. So Jacob knows now that in God's providence, this is... His plan. And so though he looks with joy at that reunion with Joseph. There is clearly fear and trepidation. There's a mixture of sorrow as he takes his little clan down to Egypt. This isn't the route that he would have chosen. But he goes with fear and trepidation at God's command. And it's noteworthy that precisely in the time of his need. God reveals himself to him. He speaks to Israel here. If you look at verses 3 and 4, you see six things that God says to Jacob by way of comfort. First of all, he tells him wonderfully, I am God, the God of your father. My friends, God himself is always our greatest comfort. I am God, the God of your father. But God identifies himself specifically as the God of his father to remind him and reinforce that covenant promise that had been made to Isaac and to Abraham before him. So, firstly, he says, I am God, the God of your father. Secondly, he says, do not be afraid. God says, do not be afraid to go down into Egypt. He's given him more than approval, he's given him encouragement to go on this journey. There's no forbidding of God here. There is no Jacob, you should not be doing this. Or there's no silence. God is not silent about this journey. Do not be afraid to go into Egypt. This is my plan, the Lord is telling Israel. Thirdly, he says, for there I will make you a great nation. Specifically fulfilling the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. This is where he will make Abraham a great nation. Fourthly, and it was very poignant even when I read it, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. The greatest blessing and privilege, the greatest comfort that a believer can experience in this life is God's gospel presence. His evangelical presence. His favourable saving presence. And you're reminded here when you see God promising to Jacob To be with him as he goes down to Egypt. Something that happens hundreds of years later. When David has it on his heart to build a temple for the Lord. A permanent dwelling place. In 2 Samuel 7 God comes to David. And he reminds him that he's always dwelt with his people in tents. Where they went, he went. And he said, never once did I ask for a temple to be built. When when my people dwelt in tents... I dwelt in a tent. The tabernacle right with them in the midst of them. So that same promise of God's presence, his nearness, his favour is made here to Jacob. What a tremendous comfort. God is is not some sort of territorial God who can handle Canaan but cannot handle Egypt. We should take encouragement that that God is As Jacob went into Egypt, one of the things that God is going to do is to display and declare his glory in Egypt. And he's going to be with him there. And fifthly, he promises, but I will bring you up again. God will not leave Jacob's family in Egypt forever. But in faithfulness to his word and in faithfulness not only to this promise, but of the promise he made Abraham in Genesis fifteen and following, he was going to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And sixth, that very precious promise, precious in the sight of the Lord, is the death of His saints, from Psalm one hundred and sixteen, and He says, "Joseph's hand will close your eyes." What a wonderful thing that Joseph's hand will close your eyes you will make it into Egypt. You will be reunited with your son. And when the day comes for me to take you home, it is your son who will close your eyes. It is his visage that you're going to see the last thing before you go home. The one thing that you thought you would never see again, you're going to see. So it's precious to see the care of the heavenly father for an earthly father. For he knows his love for his son. No one has ever loved a son like our father loved his son. So he grants Jacob this blessing that it will be Joseph who closes his eyes. Just notice a couple of things even in this passage. This interesting phrase, I will bring you out of Egypt. Now Jacob wasn't coming out of Egypt. He just did not told. But he was going to die. But there's this mix we see it again, that the federal head of the family stands for the family. That Jacob stands for the family. And the blessings of the family are the blessings of the head of the family. So when God said to Jacob, I will bring you out of Egypt, he fulfilled it with bringing his descendants out of Egypt. And we see something of the way that God uses covenant representatives And they stand for the blessings which in fact are visited upon their heirs. There's something of this in the servant songs of Isaiah. And ultimately we see this in the blessings that are heaped on the Lord Jesus Christ as our mediator. The blessings that are heaped on the Lord Jesus Christ, our mediator, become our blessings. So you see this mixture of the individual and the corporate in saying... I will bring you out of Egypt. The meaning is I will bring your descendants out of Egypt. Second thing of interest I'd like you just to see in verse 5. The sons of Israel. Now this phrase, the sons of Israel or children of Israel. Has been used in Genesis a few times. A few times, maybe three or four. Before this passage. Before this, three or four times but it's used 680 times in the Bible to stand for the people of God. And beginning here, it becomes, if you like, a phrase for the people of God, the people he had chosen for himself, the children of Israel. So even here in the inauguration of the nation, that God is taking Israel into Egypt to create a nation. And he will do it in adversity. Now, it's true that that's something of a platitude or a maxim, that character is created in adversity. None of us, if you've played maybe even sports or done sports, would have ever been able to get through a season or even one session without the PE teacher telling you that it takes the hard times to make the good times. It's almost a platitude in a way. And to to switch the metaphor the Greeks had a saying attributed to Socrates. And it's, it's a phrase, I hadn't heard it before, but if a man marries a good wife, he will have a happy life. If he marries a bad wife, he will become a philosopher. That's what the, to, the to, you know, but the point is that adversity creates character, is the idea behind that. Adversity creates character. And it's a maxim, isn't it? It's used all over. That adversity creates character. But there's something more specific being said here. Our response to providence is to see God's hand preparing to shape our character. It isn't some general universal law that adversity creates character, but it is God who specifically and personally works to shape the character of his people individually and collectively. And that is what Israel and his people would learn in Egypt. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And God's plan of providence for the shaping of this great nation, where was it? It was the crucible of oppression in Egypt. And that operates for the people of God at the corporate and at the individual level. The letter was once published, it's done around a little bit, by a Robert G. Ray- Rayburn, and in the face of his own battle with cancer, he wrote in 1976 to, min- to minister to a young man in the, the church where he ministered, whose faith was under attack, and who was extremely upset that his pastor had cancer. So this is the letter. Dear Tom, I learned from your mother that you feel God had done something wrong in allowing me to have this physical problem which is facing me at this specific time. But I want to assure you, Tom, that you are mistaken in feeling this way. The Bible tells us that it is the mercy of God that we're not consumed. And certainly when we realise the sinfulness of our own hearts and realise how gracious God has been to us in spite of our sin, we have no grounds whatsoever to complain against him. Since this cancer has been discovered in my body I have felt instead of resentment a real desire to glorify my Lord in my illness. That's not easy to do, I know. The natural inclination to be somewhat bitter rises in my heart but God has given me a peace through verses like Romans 12 whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And I am taking this chastening as evidence that God loves me. Please would you accept it in the same way. The Lord Jesus Christ is a great saviour. He never fails those who put their trust in him. This is not bluff. It is reality. Yours sincerely, Robert G. Rayburn. And that young man, Tom, who he wrote to, became a minister of the gospel. But he reminds us here that God's discipline in providences are to be responded to by his people. Shows us how. And that's what God is going to do corporately. In the life of Israel, the nation. He's going to manifest his love by creating them in his image. Where? In the crucible of adversity. So Israel goes to Egypt in obedience, knowing that trials will come. Secondly, verses 8 to 27. If I took that long on the first few verses, imagine how much I'm going to take for now. But um, you review the names of Israel, You see God by Moses recording these names. They may remember his power in the day in which they're brought out of Egypt. Obviously God is going to have to do a great work to make this little brood into a great nation. Now there are some difficulties in the list, which some people educated beyond their intelligence love to point out. Um, But in the Greek translation we're given a different numbering of the names and there are all kinds of variations that go on. But the point is clear. That this relatively small number of people go to the land of Egypt as the household of Israel and they come out in their millions. That is the point. That is why it's there. That's why it's listed. That this relatively small brood of people go into Egypt and will come out in their millions. One thing I want to point out particularly is the mention of the nationality of the mother of Shiel the son of a Canaanite woman, we're told. Verse 10, when the sons of Simeon are listed, shael the son of a Canaanite woman. And this verse singles out the mother of this son of Simeon, perhaps to make a point. Does this reveal something of the purpose of God, something for his reason of moving providentially into Egypt? Listen to what John Calvin said, the Holy Fathers on their guard not to mix in marriage with the nation from which they were separated by the decree of heaven. is Moses hinting to us that one reason why God would place Israel in isolation and separate her from admixture is the thought and families of the land of Canaan. Let me just mention this in connection with that. It's not simply that God is preparing Israel by taking Israel into Egypt. God is preparing Canaan by taking Israel into Egypt. Because in Genesis 15... It not only says that God will bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but it says that God will bring them into the land of Canaan when the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. So as God's common grace is removed, as the family of Abraham is removed from the land of Canaan, it is the way to be made clear for the Canaanites Canaanites to take their sin to its conclusion and to be prepared for the judgment of God for the coming of Israel. God's providence, God's providence doing many things at once with the same action. And this is the God that we love and serve. And this tiny list will stand in stark contrast one day. This tiny list that we have in verses 8 to 27 stands in stark contrast to the multitude of people that God will bring out of Egypt. So no wonder that God will say to Israel in Deuteronomy 7 verse 7, As they stand on the verge of entering the land of Canaan. It was not because you were more in number than any other people. That the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. They could have felt pretty good about themselves coming out of Egypt. They were a pretty big mob coming out of Egypt. But he reminds them you were 70 when you started. You were the least I chose you because I love you. And my friends, we stand. We stand. We, if, we, if, we are, if you're a child of God this morning, it's not because you were slightly better or you were more. It is always and ultimately ever the grace of God. It's God's grace to you. And thirdly, the reunion of Joseph and Israel, verses 28 to 34. You look at this reunion of Joseph with his father, and preparing for the audience of Pharaoh. We see Israel seeing Joseph's greatness. You see Joseph reunited with his father, verses 28 and 29, and Moses is restrained, I think quite restrained in his presentation of this touching scene. I've often thought that if this was made into a film, this alone, these two verses, would be, would be sort of like, I don't know, 75% of the film. you know. But Moses in passing mentions the affection that Joseph has for his father and the display of that in the reunion. And Jacob sees his son and says, Lord, you can take me home now. I've seen my son, whom I thought I would never see again. And then Joseph gives that advice to his family ahead of their meeting with Pharaoh. And he says to them very, very strategically, the Egyptians can't stand livestock herders and shepherds. So they need to delicately and carefully explain that to Pharaoh. But they will need to mention it because it will ensure that they are isolated in the land of Egypt. Because the Egyptians will not want to be around them. They will be placed in Goshen and left alone. because Precisely because they're shepherds there'll be no attempt on Pharaoh to integrate them into the life of Egyptian culture. Precisely because they're shepherds, they will be left alone in Goshen. They're shepherds, they're livestock herders. And we have and, and we have evidence that, could, that show the contempt that Egyptians had for livestock her- herders. You can see them in some of the um, You know, some of the artwork from that that time. So you see God's hand of providence protecting Israel from mixing with the false gods of Egypt. God is good to his servants. And I say as parents, that's a responsibility we have to protect our children from the world. To protect our children from the world. I actually... I actually read something from a guy called Paul Washer this week who, who spoke about, do you, do you think that it is enough to have your kids exposed all week, all week to, to secular school and then just have 20 minutes of Bible teaching on a Sunday? Do you think that that is enough to protect them from the world? If all the messages that, that, that they're getting it's, it's it's the craziness of the messages that that stand for what is right today. And we see before our very, very eyes the enemy saying, Did God really say? Did God really say? And that's been challenged every step of the way. And we need to protect those that the Lord has given us. Because we see here. God protected Israel when it went into Egypt. Didn't he say, just go in. Just go in. No, they specifically and strategically protected them. God is so good to his servants. He blesses us above what we deserve. He prepared the way for Israel to be protected in Egypt. And they'll go many years under the protection of Joseph. And after him they will be secluded because of their cultural differences. So God is showing his strategic providential goodness as well as just the reunion of Joseph and Israel. Do you remember how pessimistic Jacob had become? From Genesis 37, from the time that it was reported the apparent death of Joseph. From all the recorded words of Jacob, he's normally talking about death. You know, it's good to talk about death in in some ways, but if that's all you ever got from somebody, you might not spend every afternoon with them. So he'd become a bit of a pessimistic man. He had no hope for his future, but God blessed him above his deserving. God proved him wrong, and he proved himself a good God in his providence, as Jacob beheld his beloved son and was reunited with him. And he saw the fulfilment of God's revelation. My friend, how good God is. We have a good God who knows what is best for us. And God is good. And the way that we are to respond to his providence is not simply just to acquiesce in it. But to look and embrace in his providence the discipline he has for us. To respond in trust and obedience. Always to follow his word as he has revealed himself in the scripture. May God bless the word for his glory. Amen.